Father, we do confess with all our hearts that Christ is our only hope. And we desire now to see him in your word and be reminded there of all we have in Christ. So may through your spirit now, as we open your word, may you do your work and help us to see what we should, what we need. We pray, Lord, you'd accomplish your purposes now for your glory. It's in Christ we ask. Amen. Do you have a favorite Disney song? Surely one of the most well-loved is the oldie from, ni- from 1946. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine heading my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder. It's the truth. It's actual. Everything's satisfactional. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, wonderful feeling, feeling this way. Jolene really wanted me to sing that, <laughs> but, but I knew it would not be helpful. And our girls don't know it, or perhaps they could have. It's a fun, cheerful, lively, and peppy song. But we're all keenly aware that not every day is wonderful. We don't always enjoy plenty of sunshine. Everything's not always satisfactional, and our feelings aren't always wonderful, especially over the last 10 months. Yet as Christians, we're called to be content. Well, what is Christian contentment? What does it look like? In his classic book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Written around 1648, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs defined it as follows. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every condition. Or defined another way in the words of Davis. Finding delight in God's wise plan for my life and humbly allowing him to direct me in it. Now, this does not mean that we should go through life pretending everything is fine and never pursue any means of deliverance from our trials. It does not mean that we don't recognize that there are things that ought to change and pursue the appropriate action as many are doing right now with their New Year's resolutions. Christian contentment means that there isn't an all-consuming discouragement or worry, fretting, complaining, and pursuit of deliverance at all costs from the things that we wish were different. Are you content this morning? Can you truly say, as we sung earlier in the service, it is well with my soul? To one degree or another, I think that we all struggle with contentment. I know that I do, especially with the events of 2020, which is why I chose to study and preach from a short passage written by the Apostle Paul. I invite you now to turn there. It's Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, 
verses 10 through 13. Please follow along as I read Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your concern, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, anytime we just plop down in the middle of a book of the Bible, it's really important that we understand what is going on around us. How do these first verses fit in with the whole? Well, the Apostle Paul had helped to start the church in the city of Philippi, which met in the house of Lydia. Acts 16 tells us how that began. He stayed there long enough to establish a close friendship with this community of believers. He grew to love them deeply. He soon left Philippi as he continued his missionary activities, but he remained close to the friends that he had gained there in in that city. And in about five years after starting the church, he was thrown into prison. The Philippian church loved Paul, and so they sent Epaphroditus to visit him and to deliver a gift, which Paul references in more detail, starting in verse 14 and following in chapter 4. So in response to this gift, Paul wrote this letter from prison, and he sent it back to the church in Philippi. It seems from these verses that he wanted them to know that his love for them was not tied to their gift. And since they had worries, which he mentions in verse 7, since they had need, which he references in verse 19, it was important for them to hear and see Paul's example of contentment, which we can gather from verse 9, he wanted them to follow. Although we are not the original audience of this letter, it nonetheless is God's inspired word preserved for us. And we too need Paul's word on contentment. And in these three short verses, we see four important points for us to consider this morning. First, we see that contentment is not found in our circumstances. That's, that's very clear here from what Paul says. I remember several years ago asking some of my coworkers at my security job what contentment was. And pretty much all of them equated it in some way with happiness. When do we tend to be happy? When circumstances are to our liking. I don't know about you, but when Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder and things are going just the way I want them to, I feel content. But when he flies away, I don't like it. And I feel discontent. But Paul states here that he's learned to be content in all circumstances, no matter what is going on in his life, 
he's content. Perhaps you may think, yeah, but that was Paul. He did not experience what I'm going through. That's true. Definitely his experience were not, your experiences are not exactly like his. But chances are he came close. And likely even, Paul experienced a thing or two even worse than you and I. Paul had financial problems. He speaks of being poor in verse 12. In 2 Corinthians 6, he said that he had no physical possessions. He later adds that he had labored in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul was not financially secure, but he was content. Paul was a church planting missionary, and he made tents in his spare time. His job situation was certainly not as stable as most of ours. And like many today, it was a struggle. He said that in addition to all the near-death experiences in his travels, he faced the daily pressure from his concern for all the churches. Put those two together, and you've got stress. That is some serious stress. And as Paul wrote this letter, he was unemployed. His career was on hold as he sat in prison, unjustly accused and waiting execution. If you are struggling with issues relating to your job, you can be content. Paul knew a thing or two as well about health problems. In Galatians 4, he recalls a severe illness, perhaps malaria, which interrupted his ministry plans. He was beaten with whips five times, with rods three times. On one occasion, he was stoned and presumed dead. And his illnesses weren't temporary. It was very possible that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some painful, debilitating disease or ailment. He wanted it gone. But God gave him the grace to bear it instead. So in all of our physical struggles, we can be content. Paul had relational problems, relationship problems. As if being persecuted from unbelievers was not enough, he was repeatedly rejected by other Christians. 2 Timothy 1, he says, everyone in the province of Asia had deserted me. And even though he had not withheld his affection for the Corinthians, they were not showing him any love. Are you being mistreated? Do you feel ignored or betrayed by someone you care for? You can still be content. So whatever the particular struggle God places in your life, you can be content. Because contentment is not based on circumstances. Paul also states that he learned how to be content when he's experiencing abundance. When all is well. That can't be too hard, right? What does contentment look like when we have abundance? Well, it means that there is a, de a detachment from the big paycheck. The dream job 
the fancy house. There's a detachment from physical health or meaningful relationships. Any of this or all of it could either be given away or taken away and we would still be content. And as hard as it is to be content with little, it may be even harder to be truly content with abundance. Because no matter what you may have, there is always something more. I suspect that we've all seen stories, either in the news, on TV, of people who seem to have it all. But it just isn't enough. Coming off his fourth Super Bowl victory in 2014, quarterback Tom Brady said, you know what my favorite Super Bowl ring is? The next one. Contentment does not come with abundance because having a lot does not eliminate our desire for more. So we acknowledge this. We, we recognize this. We affirm that it's true. Contentment's not found in our circumstances. But all too often, we, we think that it is. We, we act as if it is true. We tell ourselves, if only I was married, if only my mate would change, then I would be content. If only I had children, or if only they were gone, or if only this child or that child would be more obedient, then I would be content. If only I had different parents, a different job, a different church, a better nose, or better hair. If only I was healthy, had more money, or better friends. If only my circumstances would change, then I would be content. Really? You would? That's what we so easily believe. But it's a lie. Burroughs said that thinking this way is like the child who really wants to touch the clouds. And so he climbs a hill only to find that the clouds are out of reach. But he sees another hill and thinks, if only I could get to the top of that one, then I could touch the clouds. But when he gets to the top of that hill, he finds out that the clouds were just as far away as before. Yes, kids used to climb hills, especially in 1648. So when we look for contentment at some point in the future, it will never arrive. We'll keep waiting until tomorrow. We'll arrive at that point in time that we expected to provide contentment and find it lacking. If your contentment, is your contentment based on circumstances? If so, you're never going to find it. Because Christian contentment is not found in our circumstances. Second, contentment is not found within ourselves. 
It's not found within ourselves. Our world is obsessed with self. The individual, we are told, is totally sovereign. It follows then that most people think contentment is within you. It's in your mind. Just channel your positive feelings and you'll be content. And this is precisely what most of the people in Paul's day thought. This is the only place in the New Testament where this particular Greek word, translated content, is used. Only place. But it was a very significant word to the Stoics of Paul's day. In their ethics, contentment was the essence of all virtues. The Stoic believed that all the resources for coping with life and being content were within himself. He just had had to learn how to properly channel them, to accept whatever happens, and pretty much just not care. To get to a point where nothing and no one else were essential to him. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, Man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. It is said that the Stoics made of the heart a desert and called it peace. I don't personally know any self-proclaimed Stoics today, but this thinking certainly is alive and well in our world. Are you seeking contentment within yourself? If you are, how's that going? How's that going for you? Despite your best efforts of placing mind over matter, God says that your heart is sinful. And therefore, you do not have it within yourself to be truly content. You are a sinner separated from God. And your most sincere efforts to be at peace with life will fail because you're not at peace with God. Well, if contentment is not found in our circumstances and it's not found within ourselves, where does it come from? Paul tells us here that contentment is found in Jesus Christ. We see this in the second half of verse 12 and verse 13, where Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul states that he's learned what he calls the secret of contentment, which is knowing the Lord Jesus and learning to depend on him for strength, for contentment. Paul takes this word for contentment and transforms it. Like the Stoic, he expresses his independence of external circumstances, but only because he's totally dependent upon God. As one commentator said, Paul was not self-sufficient, but God-sufficient. Verse 13 is used in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places. If you watch sports at all, you probably see 
the reference, Philippians 4.13, displayed in lots of different ways. Back when he played for the University of Florida, Heisman Trophy winning quarterback and professing Christian, Tim Tebow wrote Philippians 4.13 on the little black stickers that, that he put under his eyes. Or, for example, moving into the world of academics, Janet tells her high school friend, you know, I'm horrible at math. I haven't really studied. There's no way I should pass this test. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ. So I'm feeling pretty good. No. No and no. This verse does not mean that we can do anything we want because of Christ's strength. It must be understood in its context. In its context. After the first service, Matt Swinson pointed me to a t-shirt which says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) We've got to understand this verse in its context. In the context here, as we've been discussing, is contentment. Paul is saying, I can do all things, namely be content through Christ. The secret to being content in every circumstance is Christ's strength. Without his strength, we would be overwhelmed by adversity and we would be intoxicated by prosperity. Through him, here in verse 13, could also be translated in him or in Christ, in vital union with the one who strengthens me. As one united with Christ, Paul found in him the source of God's power to be content in any circumstance. And this union with Christ strengthens us to be content in all our circumstances because above all, it gives us God. Through Christ, God has met our deepest need. In Christ, we've received salvation from our sins. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That requires infinite strength. Paul is saying that since there is strength in Christ to save us, there is strength in Christ to make us content in every situation. Well, how does this work? If we are in Christ, how do we experience his strength for contentment? And the answer is through faith. Through faith. A great example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where we read of Paul's struggle with his thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, Paul wanted it gone. He pleaded with the Lord to take it away. I think it's safe to say Paul is having a hard time being content. But instead of taking it away, the Lord told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God tells Paul that my grace, all that you have in Christ, 
is all you need. It's enough. So Paul says, okay, I'm going to believe that. By faith, I'm going to trust that. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Faith looks beyond ourselves and our circumstances to him who has the fullness of strength for all contentment. So I wonder this morning, have you been pursuing contentment in yourself, in the things of the world or a change of circumstances? Only to find over and over again that you can't catch it, that it's eluding you and slipping through your grasp. You no doubt have experienced seasons of exhilaration and happiness. But it doesn't ever seem to last. And your soul remains empty. What a joy it was two weeks ago to hear testimonies from those that were getting baptized. And Alex Olds, in his testimony of faith, shared how he was controlled by anger, depression, in anxiety, seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in medications, alcohol, and even running. But he remained empty. He remained empty until July 29, when he found his true contentment in Jesus Christ. So in order to experience true contentment, you must understand that God has created you in his image And therefore, he alone can fill the deepest longing of your soul. You will never be truly content without Jesus. You must become united to Christ. And you can be. If, as Alex did, you but turn from your sin and place your trust in his death in your place on the cross. And if if you would like to know more about this free gift of salvation, to to know more about what it means to be united to Christ, please talk with somebody before you leave. We would be delighted to discuss this with you further and point you to the hope we have in Christ. Contentment's not found in our circumstances. It's not found in ourselves. Contentment's found in Jesus Christ. And finally, Contentment must be learned. Contentment must be learned. Paul says that there in the second half of verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Although all the strength necessary to be content is provided for us when we're united to Christ, we get all of Christ at the moment of conversion. Contentment must be developed through the lifelong process of Christian growth. As with Paul, it's something we must continue to learn as part of our ongoing sanctification. I can certainly identify with Burroughs who said, it's a harder thing to learn contentment than to preach it or speak of it. But the difficult process of learning contentment is worth the effort. For as Davis notes, 
there are few subjects of the Christian life that will pay as many sweet dividends, both in this life and the next. And so, fellow students, as we are enrolled together in God's school of contentment, let's consider five actions that I think will help us grow in our learning to be content. There's no formula. This is certainly not exhaustive. But but just five things that I hope will be helpful. But perhaps we could see them as our homework assignments. And the due date is when we meet Christ, either through death or his return. First, we must repent of sin. We must repent of sin. This is where we got to start. We should start by confessing our discontentment as sin against God because fundamentally, discontentment is failing to submit to God. Bridges said discontent is one of the most satanic of all sins and to indulge in it is to rebel against God just as Satan did. And as we confess our discontent, we must also look below the surface for the sins that contribute to our lack of contentment. The sin of unbelief, doubting God's goodness and love for you. The pride of thinking we know better than God or deserve better than what he's given us. We need to consider the sin of impatience, not trusting God's timing in resisting his call to wait. Or the sin of worry, jealousy, coveting, and envy. And the sin of idolatry. Identify the ways in which you've sought contentment in things, people, or experiences. What are the false foundations on which you've sought fulfillment and satisfaction? As one has said so well, Christian contentment will elude you until you renounce its counterfeits. While we often think that the way to contentment is getting rid of a burden we don't like, Burroughs insightfully stated that the way to contentment is actually to add another burden, namely the awareness of the sin in our own heart. And on this point, I think it's really important that we beware of the dangers of technology, that that we be thoughtful and aware of the dangers of technology. Our digital age is wonderful in so many ways. But we must recognize that the internet can be a powerful tool of Satan to stir up discontent in our hearts. With so much accessible to our fingertips, we become restless, Wondering about what our friends are doing, what's happening in politics, or pretty much anything other than what's before us in the moment. Our devices have a terrifying power to fuel our restlessness and impatience. They make us long for things we don't have, and they show us incessant images of things which very well may already be an idol in our heart. Consider carefully then how time on social media, your intake of the news, and use of your phone and computer in general 
might be contributing to discontentment in your heart. And then make the difficult but necessary change, changes to replace that time with fruitful and constructive activities which will help you become more and more content. We repent of sin. Second, we must look to Christ. Since Jesus is the secret for Christian contentment, then in order to grow in him, we must continue to look to him. In his book entitled The Power of Christian Contentment, Pastor Andy Davis has a wonderful chapter on how Christ teaches us contentment. And he says, Jesus is the example of contentment, the intrepid pioneer leading the way through enemy territory, and the mighty captain fighting our spiritual enemies and perfecting our contentment in heaven. And then he proceeds to describe nine different ways we can learn contentment from Christ. By his example, his God-centeredness, by his atonement and resurrection, by winning for us access to God, by his presence, by his demands, by teaching us the immeasurable worth of the kingdom of heaven, and by teaching us how to defeat our fear and anxiety. Christ ministers contentment to us all through the gospel. So we must keep looking to him if we're to grow in it. Third, we must trust in God's promises. All throughout his word, God reveals truth about his character. And he proves over and over and over and over again that he always keeps his promises. Burroughs said that whenever one is reading the Bible and sees a promise, he ought to lay his hand upon it and say, this is part of my inheritance. It is mine, and I am to live upon it. This, he says, will make you contented. So so consider just these three promises and how holding on to them will help us learn contentment. God says, since I gave up my own son for you, how will I not also with him graciously give you all things? Romans 8, 32. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And here's the promise. For he has said, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. Or 2 Corinthians 4 17, where Paul writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And there are so many more, so many more promises. And knowing and trusting in all of them will help us learn to be content. Fourth, we must rest in God's providence. We must rest in God's providence. It'd be really, really, really hard, I think, for us to maintain a sweet, inward, quiet submission to a set of random events that did not come from God. Actually, I think 
that wouldn't just be really, really hard. I think it'd be impossible. But Scripture teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. And he works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. So we can be certain that every aspect of our life is by divine appointment and for our good. So then, resting in God's providence, we can be content with the outcome of any election. Because Daniel 2.21 says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings, and he sets up kings. And we can be content with the decisions a president and his administration may make. Because Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Resting in God's providence, we can be content with our appearance, even though we may have chosen something different. Psalms 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This means that every single strand of our DNA was fashioned by God. Exactly how it's supposed to be. So then we can sing the children's song. If I were a butterfly, I'd thank you for my wings. And if I were a robin in the tree, I'd thank you that I could sing. And if I were were a fuzzy wuzzy bear, I'd thank you for my fuzzy wuzzy hair. But I thank you, Father, for making me, me. The doctrine of God's meticulous providential rule over every single detail in our universe is vital to Christian contentment. And if you'd like to go deeper on this doctrine, there's so much to it. This is a rich and deep doctrine that we'll we'll never fully exhaust, but it's so crucial. And if you'd like to go deeper in, in learning about it, I commend to you Pastor Miller's sermon series on providence, which you can find on our website. There are 17 sermons. And if you go there, just be sure you listen to them in chronological order because the first one is actually at the bottom of the page. But, but that, that's just a, a resource that, that would be helpful if you want to go deeper on this. And there's certainly also lots of written resources that are helpful if you'd rather read something. Be happy to help you um, in that regard as well. We must repent of our sin as we learn contentment. Look to Christ. Trust in God's promises. Rest in God's providence. And finally, we must value the body of Christ. Value the body of Christ. The Christian life is a community project, which is why God gave us the church. And he intends for us to help each other in our battle against discontent. We need each other to help us see the sins and identify the idols that are keeping us from being content. We need each other to help us focus on Christ. And we need to see the example of those who've learned to be content, which so many of you are. As by God's grace, you powerfully demonstrate to our church family what it looks like 
to be content in circumstances that are really tough. There's names and faces in my mind of so many of you that are examples to me of Christian contentment in situations that I don't even understand and are certainly far worse than anything that I know. And I thank God for the examples he provides in the church to help us see and grow in our contentment. So being an engaged and active church member will help you grow in contentment. So then in conclusion, as we considered at the beginning, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every condition. This contentment cannot come from our circumstances, nor will we find it within ourselves. Jesus Christ and his power is the secret to true Christian contentment, the rare jewel we must continue to pursue as we learn more and more how to be content with whatever God brings or doesn't bring into our lives. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Christ. As, as these three short verses just remind us of the gift and the grace he is to us. And Father, thank you for all that you've given us in Christ and particularly the power to be content no matter what's happening in our lives, good or bad. Father, may we rest in Christ and his power and may you teach us more and more what it means to be content. Help us to learn continue to learn what this means and how we can have the strength in Christ. Father, we confess to you how often we're discontent. We confess to you so much sin that is under the surface contributing to our discontent. Father, forgive us of that and thank you for the forgiveness you've given us in Christ. And for any who may be here this morning who are yet to know personally of true contentment found only in Jesus, Father, give them the desire, draw them to Christ, show them the beauty and fulfillment that only he can provide. And we pray, Lord, that you would do all of these things for your glory and for our good. We ask this all through Jesus. Amen.